Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is a look at Season 2, Episode 2, Son of Hades. It was written by Bruno Heller and directed by Alan Coulter. Hello there, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. How are you going today? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, is this still a fond look at HBO's Rome for you? <laughs> <laughs> the word fond might be a little less relevant here. Yeah. Uh, I think this is my least enjoyable episode, not to put people off. I think that I'm uh, in the same place as you, yeah. It's a, a difficult time of Rome's history that they're trying to cover as well. Uh, I think that you, you come down from such a high of the death of Caesar, I guess, and those sort of events there, and um, and to now have to try and cover the aftermath of it and what they put Varinas through. And okay, so in this episode, uh, Antony becomes disgruntled with the tedious administrative duties of running an empire. Cleopatra makes an unexpected appearance, pushing for the legitimacy of her son by Caesar, and Varinas embarks upon his latest career path as a crime boss of Rome. Yeah, it's it's kind of transitional, isn't it? Mm. The time they're trying to cover. And to be honest, I was expecting, given we've had compression of events a lot, and obviously we have, they can't cover everything we have in the sources. I mean, we talked before about how the battles get compressed out, but other events as well, and people get brushed over because it would be a cast of thousands, not just hundreds. But for once, I thought a bit of compression would have helped me. Yeah. I, I guess I'm waiting, and, and again, it might be a little bit of prior knowledge. I'm waiting for the showdown with Brutus and Cassius, and I assumed that was going to happen soon. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know it can't be long away, but I suppose there's an element of wanting to keep Varenus and Pullo involved, although surely they could be sent off to battle, or at least one of them. Mm. Anyway, that's a, an episode I wanted to see, which is not what the episode was, so it shouldn't be what, what we're discussing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in a few episodes down the track, we'll look back on this one and go, well, they could have just done without that. Ah, uh, okay. So it's not even a setting things up episode, uh, Well, really. I, I mean, you know, this this setting some things up, I'm sure. I mean, you get the introduction, the reintroduction of Cleopatra, mm. and you, you know that stuff's going to develop between her and Mark Antony. And I guess that that was welcome because she wasn't at the end of season one when she would have been in Rome around the time of Caesar's death. Yes. It's it's very strange, her absence there, presumably when they made those episodes. I actually don't know this production-wise if they knew series two was happening. Yeah. I think we... They, they did They know. did. Yeah, yeah. Well, they knew Cleopatra was coming back in, so I'm not really sure why she wasn't present at Rome during that time. We know that Caesar brought her to Rome and had her installed in a house. I think we've discussed that before. Yeah. And that this is when she needs to leave Rome because yeah. her protector has been murdered. Mm. So her mm. introduction here seems quite jarring, if you know that, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I found that a lot that was happening in this episode around Antony, uh, around the young Octavian still, these are all kind of things that we knew would have happened or did happen, but none of them happened around this time because Octavian's not meant to be in Rome at this point. Cleopatra's not meant to be in Rome. <laughs> and it, it just becomes all a bit jarring from that standpoint. The other bit of it is I, I was bored. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was a bit too. And I, I feel like Antony was bored and I, I understood his boredom. But I, And this is, this is not really about Roman history. It's, it's about 
character dynamics. You know, he obviously was an ally of Caesar's, but they often saw things from different points of view. So there'd be a bit of rubbing up against each other there. Antony wanted to just get on with stuff and Caesar would think through how, how this would work politically, how it would look to the public, something like that. That was interesting. Antony versus Cicero is an interesting dynamic now and will get more interesting, but there wasn't very much of that. Mm. And I guess I'm missing Caesar and I'm missing Brutus. I, I mean, I know Caesar's gone and I have to deal with it, but Brutus, I really thought that towards the end of the first series and the beginning of this series, Brutus has become the heart of this. And not to give too much away, there's not that much of him left, so I want to make the most of him. Mm. I think Antony basically needs somebody to rub against, to be in conflict with. Yeah. And he is in conflict with everyone in this episode, but, you know, Octavian is becoming stronger, but he's still pretty weak. They tried to do a little bit of he's kind of being rude and obnoxious to Cleopatra, but we all know how that's going to end up. So mm. it didn't feel like there was much tension there. I don't know. I don't feel the chemistry there, I suppose. Yeah. And, and so it didn't work for me. I guess that, you know, this is very much a bridging to get to mm. the next episodes. And Octavian is still too young the way that he's portrayed to be a, a threat. He's not establishing himself well enough yet. That's going to happen because at the end of this episode, he heads off to Campania, I think, to hang out with Agrippa, they said, uh, which I think might have been the first mention of Agrippa that we've had in, mm. the, in the show. And Brutus needs time to establish himself over in the East and be a credible threat there. So we're going to get to that point. And in the moment, you've got Antony just being sullen and bored with the administrative side of Rome, which, to be fair, Antony strikes me as the kind of guy who would be sullen and bored when dealing with people making petitions and Atia and... I'm sorry to put it this way, her crap, <laughs> you know, whatever she's worried about, Anthony just doesn't want to deal with it. You know, he seems to hate sitting around the family dining room table. Yeah, he's a man of action. Yeah. He's been built as that character in this series, which the truth of that is hard to establish. One thing I'd say is that getting impatient with Artia is sort of something they've had to do because they've put him in a relationship with Atia, which we have no historical basis for, but we know he's going to have to move away from that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess for the logic of the series, that kind of has to happen. And of course, he's going to come into conflict with Octavian, which is her interests. And the second thing is, I'm not as convinced. It works for his character, the way his character's been built, but He's a Roman through and through. He knows the business of Rome. He knows what would be involved in being consul. Mm, so mm. that I find slightly less persuasive. And the other aspect of it is uh, pretty much where this episode starts, which is Varinus going through depression and going through a mourning period and Rome coming to grips with what it means for Caesar to be dead and more immediately for Erastus Fulman, who was, while he was built up as a crime lord of the Aventine, his death has made a bit of a power vacuum, mm -hmm. which has led to even more anarchy on the streets of Rome. We see, you know, people fighting and a guy staggering around for a few blocks that seemed with a dagger in his back and those sort of things. And uh, just I know that was yeah. meant to be establishing, but I found that slightly confusing because for a while I thought, am I meant to know who these characters are? No, you're not at all. I think yeah. it was just the, the general chaos yeah, of yeah. it all uh, because the episode opened where the last one finished, which was Varinus walking into his house still carrying the head of Erastus Fulman, which he he just dispatched with. And uh, Pullo essentially being nursemaid Pullo, where is in the first season of those positions were kind of flipped. Yeah. A bit nice to see. And uh, his new wife, sorry, uh, the, the former slave, do you, do you remember her name? 
this is bad. Irina. Irina? Irene. Irene. Yes, which means peace. Ah. I think that I think that's meaningful. Okay. Those two kind of having, you know, a, a nice married couple relationship. <laughs> well, nice, except there's a bit of tension there already. Well, she wants to get away. Yeah, I know, because this house is death, mm. you know. But Paulo is very loyal to Varinus and he's not going to leave him in that state. I did like how uh, Paulo goes over and tries to kiss Irene and she pushes him away and says, not until you shave. And my wife pointed to me and said, ha, it's not just me. <laughs> so. We cannot stay here forever. It's not right. This place is a house of death. I know. But if we make a baby here, God forbid, it would be a monster. In a lot of ways in this episode, I think we're going to be saying that didn't happen or that's invented for the sake of the narrative. Mm. But in this case, and I'm not sure how intentional it was given the way it was presented, Irene calling it a house of death, I think that would have been reflected partly because there's a part of Erastes Fullman's body there. Mm. And for the Romans, that's taboo. The unburied dead are kind of these ghostly figures called lemures who will haunt the home until they are properly buried. No, that um, makes sense. And disturb yeah. the living. Yeah. And that's what's happening. It's kind of right that she feels uncomfortable and that Varinus is still haunted by this. I mean, I guess if we didn't know that, we tend to read it as he's haunted by his actions leading to the deaths of those around him, mm. both from the level of Julius Caesar to his own family. But also what seems authentic about this is that wearing a mourning beard, the beard that you brought up, and Varinus being in those mourning weeds, that is something that would happen. It, it happens both in the case of mourning and if you're on trial. Yeah, So okay. they're kind of parallel. You're sort of in this state of grief, it's kind of suspended animation mm. during that period. But they've sort of put the limit of a month on it. I don't think we know the exact limit. I think it's Irene who says it's been going on for a month. It needs to change. Or maybe it's Polo who says it. I think Polo says yeah. uh, to Varinus that a full moon has passed. It still goes on after that because Varinus doesn't get out of bed at this point and, and continue on with his mm. life. And um, just kind of having a, a rotting head there in the corner can't be good for your health. <laughs> you know, at that point, I thought, is there a fly in the room as I'm watching this? And then I realized it was the fly around the head. <laughs> a fly hanging around the head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't a very sanitary action, but, you know, grief does that, I guess, to some people. So that is a tone that for Varinus will kind of continue through the rest of the episode. Well, he has a turning point, but yes. But I think it's still motivating yeah. him at that point as well. Right. Meanwhile, Mark Antony is being bogged down in bureaucracy with people petitioning him, and he seems restless. Very much so. As I've already mentioned, I think he would have known what was what he was up for being consul. Mm. I did find it a bit difficult to take that he would get bothered by such kind of low-level petitioners, because I don't know whether they're meaning to suggest that the wheels of the Roman Republic are not functioning at all properly. But, you know, there are people like the position that Varinus is meant to hold. Okay, Varinus is not doing it at the moment, but there are others. There are other magistrates. There are city magistrates. There are urban praetors and those kind of people who deal with the sewers or the, whatever they were complaining about. Yeah. It's yeah. not the consul's job. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a, either his him. minions or the minions of the Roman administration are not doing their job or I think more likely for dramatic purpose, they're trying to make it look like Mark Antony has to deal with what he regards as trivial stuff that he can't be bothered with. Well, this man in particular is, uh, is complaining about the violence of the streets, which I suppose at some point would filter up to Mark Antony. Uh, he specifically... 
he uses an interesting term. Uh, there's a hoo-ha going on, which I, <laughs> I like the anachronistic. That seems very British kind of. <laughs> colloquial, doesn't it? A hoo-ha. The other thing that he's dealing with is Octavian wanting his inheritance handed over. So this was all the money promised by Caesar during the reading of his will in the last episode. But Mark Antony seems to have other purposes in mind for this money or just thinks that, you know, it's a waste of money to give it to Octavian. What is it, dear boy? About my money, Caesar's money. You assured me I'd have it by now. I'm so sorry, it slipped my mind. I will see to it. Good, only that is what you've said several times now. (laughs) These things take time. We are talking vast sums of money. It's a great deal of... Paperwork and lawyering to be done. So when can I expect transfer to my control? What's the rush? Some wicked woman giving you the squeeze, eh? (laughs) Don't worry. I'll see to it. It's not clear what his motives are here, is it? But we know that there was a delay Mm. with the will and they've made that tension out of this, which is fair enough. And there is an extra dimension to it, which I also think was one of the better done parts of this, that money has been promised to the populace yes and it's octavian's job to give it out and i think that what they are also building on is an idea that octavian's only 19 at this point he has taken on the toga of manhood and we saw that happen in the first series and that's all fine that's correct but he's still very young to be in this position and we can imagine that mark antony might not have taken him seriously and thought that presumably that he could just use the money for his own devices. They also give him the motivation that giving the people the money now would be a waste of time because once they've got it... They'll just want more, he said. They've got got no reason to stick with you except to get more. Uh, It might be that we're meant to think, well, it would be all to Octavian's benefit and he's not that keen on it because handing out money to the people is something that makes you popular. I mean, most of them are living in dire poverty, so... Yeah, it'd make him popular. Octavian has the name of Caesar and the the fact that he's named the heir. So I think Mark Antony is doing everything possible to make sure he hasn't got another rival, mm. you know, essentially living in his own household. Yeah. Something that isn't accurate, and this is going to sound petty, but Octavian stroke Augustus would have hated this happening, is the fact that people are still calling him Octavian. Mm. Now, it was inaccurate for him to be called Octavian before because he was Octavius. But look, we call him Octavian generally in his early life to distinguish him because otherwise we'd have to go Octavius and Octavian. He's Octavian once Caesar has died, Mm. right? He is Gaius Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, the Octavian version. Mm. He never uses that. He calls himself Caesar. He is Gaius Julius Caesar. That's what he uses. Now, of course, we don't do that because it's confusing because we've already got a Julius Caesar. Yeah. So it's for clarity. But I kind of would have liked to see him invoke that a bit, even if he added the Octavianus on at the end or he corrected Mark Antony and said, this is now my name. Give it a couple of episodes. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer to everything, isn't it? Because I've forgotten so much. <laughs> I don't know that we see Max Perkis again after this episode. That's a young man who's playing Octavius. That's, I'm rather sad at that. Yeah. I think that this might be his last episode. So he goes off to Campania to be with Agrippa. And then the next time we see him... It's like um, replacing a wiggle, you know. It's somebody else wearing Octavian's costume. Is that going to make sense internationally? (laughs) Outside of the Australian context, perhaps not. I I suppose the wiggles are sort of international. (laughs) What else is it? It's It's like there'll be some boy band it works with, but I won't know them. (laughs) Previously, we had Murray Wiggle and it was all good, but now we've got Simon and what's the deal with that? (laughs) And there was Jeff, but now there's Lockie. (laughs) 
You've got to cut all that out. <laughs> I'm actually not, and we'll see who sticks with it. But, you know, at that point, he pulls up Pullo and he goes, no, 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 I'm not Octavian. Mm. Thank you. But that does reflect the fact that he never called himself anything to do with his natal family mm. after this point. Yeah. And it makes sense for him because... The Julius Caesar name is what he's going to build his whole career on now. That's really important to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he has been left all of this. Yeah. If, if if the will is genuine, then this is what he should get. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Who else is bothering Mark Antony for things? Posca at one point bothers Mark Antony for money as well. And Mark Antony just completely loses it. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't been paid forever, apparently. <laughs> I worry about Posca. He was so close to Caesar. And I just don't think he's going to get... I'm hoping that at least Octavian takes him on because I don't like his chances with Mark Antony. I don't know why he's hanging around Mark Antony, to tell you the truth. He's got his freedom. Mark Antony hasn't got the patience for Posca. Anyway, Posca deserves better. But it's a pretty good position, I guess, to be that close to the consul. Anyway, enter Cleopatra. So she comes in and everything that she says and does in this episode is either out of place or didn't happen. I can imagine that she wanted legitimacy for her son to be recognized as the son of Caesar. There's young Caesarian, not looking anywhere near four years old. He's got to be six or seven. Oh, I thought you kid. meant he looked younger. Well, no, that's why I was no, no, confused. no, no. That wasn't a four-year-old. Yeah, but that, that's often the case, isn't it? Can yeah. you get a four-year-old to sit still? Ah, yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. So while I believe that is something that she wants... I don't find it credible that she would go to Rome. We know she didn't. I don't find it credible that she would go to Rome, push her way into the chambers of the consul and demand this of her child and think that she has any clout or any way of achieving that. Yeah, and look, I feel really torn on Cleopatra. I feel like on the one hand, they aren't 100% pushing the version of Cleopatra where it's all about her sexuality and that's all she uses to get anything. Like she does seem to have a brain. Mm. Uh, Some versions of Cleopatra have all been about the sensuality and look, she manages to seduce Roman generals and that's how she gets her way. It's these womenly wiles. But there is some of that going on. And, you know, over the course of this episode, you can see her starting to turn Antony's head at that dinner. And Atia's very worried about that. But it doesn't seem to play well with her diplomatic skills, which we do, despite the fact that most of the sources are hostile, we have from Plutarch an account of her being extremely good at, you know, figuring out the mechanisms of diplomacy and and working well with other leaders. Mm. It doesn't seem to play well into that, that she would just go to the consul and demand this, as you say. Like, if she has any understanding of Roman legitimacy laws, then she knows that that is not going to be handed to her. Yeah. And and what she does seem to have done is consistently claimed, and there are varying degrees of belief of this, that this is Caesar's son. And she sometimes presents him officially, giving him the name Caesarian. She also presents him as Ptolemy. So that side of it, we're not really seeing at all. So he is Ptolemy Caesarian. Yeah, but there's a difference between doing that in Alexandria, in your own courts and the palaces that you own, and even to your own country. There's something quite different about going to Rome and doing that, especially at this time. You know, time has passed by the time she's with Mark Antony and... They're back in Egypt and what have you. Yeah, so, yeah. And yeah. and also, of course, she doesn't re-encounter Mark Antony here. I mean, presumably she could have encountered him while she was there with Caesar and would have done. But at this point, he's going to re-encounter her back in Alexandria. 
So this is kind of turning it all on its head where she kind of comes as the supplicant, as it were. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they needed... Uh, essentially minutes to fill in this episode. So they thought, look, we'll... I could have written them something. (laughs) We'll reintroduce her at this point because people will need to be familiar with who she is Mm. later on in the season. My son by Caesar is near four years old. He's begun to ask questions about his father. How touching. He's too young to understand now, but soon I must tell him that his father's people do not accept him. Not as a true legal son. It will never happen. The people wouldn't like it. We have no political design. Merely the happiness of my boy. A simple public declaration of paternity would suffice. And what would I profit by that? You would have my eternal gratitude. You also get that opportunity for her when she's leaving to have that great passing, lingering glance at Pullo. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, I recognize you. Oh, I've seen that ass. (laughs) (laughs) Don't keep that in. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) It's more than I recognize you, isn't it? She knows exactly who he is. She knows, don't you think, that he's in this series the father of her child? Yeah. Despite what she's claiming. Yeah. Also, I think they've put her here at Rome for the cat fight. So Artia has both... Cleopatra and Servilia to have a go at. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. We'll get get to that in in just one second. Uh, Before we do that, I just want to pause quickly on... We've got one final bureaucratic conversation, and that's between Mark Antony and Cicero. In that, essentially, Mark Antony presents Cicero with a a list of people's names who are going to be appointed to prominent positions and uh, wants Cicero to endorse it. Cicero calls it completely for what it is. Uh, you know, these are the people who you paid give- you enough money. <laughs> well, before that, he has this great line. Oh, you've given me a list of the biggest criminals in Rome. <laughs> That's right. Or the biggest scoundrels or something, he says. Yeah. I want more Cicero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and th- so that, that is a nice little kind of calling a, calling a spade a spade kind of thought. At that point as well is something that Mark Antony did in, uh, I think it might be Appian who talks about, that a lot of what Mark Antony did after the death of Caesar, he did by saying Caesar wanted this. He left his notes saying that he wanted these sort of things to happen. And that's what we see here. Mm. He goes, these are the wishes of Caesar. I found this while tidying up his office. And Posca went along with that, actually, in that scene as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think Posca is seems to be trying to tie himself to Antony, and so he would, wouldn't he? And mm. Possibly Posca was the one who wrote them out. Even if it had been Caesar's wishes, which we're definitely not meant to think, yeah. then Posca would have written it out for him. Yeah, Caesar's not writing stuff himself. He's got a scribe, and it's probably Posca. So while we get uh, the most awkward dinner and the cat fight and everything that happens and the, the whispered comments between Artia and Cleopatra. Oh, I do have a question on the dinner. Yeah. Is it just my old age and poor hearing? Were we meant to hear exactly what Artia was whispering and being whispered? Because I, I just caught the odd word and <laughs> uh, they weren't nice words. I didn't go back and listen to them or put the subtitles on. <laughs> um, I don't think we were meant to hear all of it. Okay. I, I think we were meant to hear the not nice words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put the subtitles on and yeah, they weren't nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically calling each other sluts. Yeah. 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 There, there are a couple of whispered comments at one point uh, when they first met Antony proposition Cleopatra 
and he was asking for more than a kiss. <laughs> so, yeah, they're very much playing on setting themselves up for who gets Antony. Mm. Yeah, it's the next thing for Atia to be worried about, I guess. The only woman who's not interested in Antony is Servilia, mm. and she's yes. there under duress. Yeah, she and very much is. I can't imagine she would be there at all. Mm. I know they want to keep her in it, and she is wonderful, but it seemed so shoehorned in somehow yeah and so did the um appearance of of time and at that party out the back preparing mm. his weapons to go and take care of Sevilla as she left the party which is appears to be what atia had in mind yeah, yeah. but i i mean i guess maybe there's more to say about this party than i thought <laughs> i guess that does a couple of jobs which is it reminds us of Timon, who's going to have a bit more plot here and reminds us of his you know that he's basically the fix-it guy for Atia mm. which we haven't seen for quite a while but also Octavian's ability to see through that ah yes, yes. Um, so there's a bit more of Octavian's really clever which they've been building for a while and there's a lot of that in this episode he's almost too clever for his own good isn't he mm. it's very much looking forward to let's make it believable that this very young man is going to end up taking charge of the Roman Empire because he knows which buttons to push. He knows what people are doing. He knows what motivates them. Yeah. And yeah. he's always on the lookout for something his mother might be up to because he knows her ways. Well, we'll come back to all of that because that ties in with the end of the episode, I guess. Just in the immediacy, re-establishing who Timon is, not that he gets any lines here at all. He just gets a couple of glances from different characters. But he then goes home and we suddenly get a, oh, here's his home life. Mm. Because previously he's just been a kind of thug for hire for Atia. He's turned up, he's done one or two lines, uh, made a couple of comments. At one point he went and hired a lawyer for Pullo and he got lucky with Atia once and always wanted a second go out of it, I think. <laughs> that was might have been the pilot episode, actually. <laughs> so. Oh, I get the impression we're meant to think that's yeah. whenever she feels like it, it's ongoing. Yeah. But now we get his home life. So mm. wife, kids, unexpected brother. And I like that for a couple of reasons, or maybe I just like the potential of it. Mm. I like that it gives us somewhere else in Rome. This is somewhere completely different from everything else that we've seen, a different type of home life, uh, a different belief system, which is going to come into how they're living. And it gave that character something more to do. It'd be like, you know, if the newsreader stepped off his podium and then went back to his newspaper headquarters and started so talking to the that. other journalists who are gathering the news. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> journalists is yeah, a bit yeah, of a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit over-egging it for Rome, but, but yeah. But, you know, it's like suddenly, you know, this is season four of The Wire and they change setting altogether. <laughs> uh, suddenly you've got another home life to be introduced to and more will come of this. Yeah, and I guess dramatically or maybe thematically, it shows us a home life that Varinus doesn't have anymore. Yes. Because we've seen quite a lot of Varinus's home life throughout the first series. And now that he's been deprived of all of that, I guess that's thrown into relief. It's highlighted by the fact that someone you might not expect to have this has had it going on all along and has a family that he has to protect, which he mentions to Levi, his brother. You know, I can't have any your danger mm. putting my family into peril. 
So he's got more to think about than just his next action and who he's going to pay by for some nefarious act. Yes, yes. Well, they all think he's an innocent horse trader. I think there's a big yeah. wink statement there from the brother. Still trading horses, wink. Yeah. yeah. All fine. The brother Levi seems to be there. He says he's there in Rome to establish some sort of uh, business contacts for whatever he's doing in trading oils and spices. spices I think yeah. it's very vaguely said, these commodities. But he seems to be there for more. They have a conversation and more is going to come of that well, later Well, he's depicted on. as someone who's very antithetical to Roman power. Mm. So I guess whatever's going to come of it to show that there is bad feeling on the part of some Jews towards yeah. Rome, yeah. <laughs> which certainly comes to a head at later points in history, but to show that it's there even now. Why have you come to Rome, given that you hate Romans? Yeah, yeah. So that's that storyline, which we'll get more of as the season progresses. And I guess the last major story thread that we've got that comes up is what happens to Varinus. Pullo goes and gets Mark Antony and asks him for advice. And Mark Antony actually responds to this because he sees that Varinus can be of use to mm. him. I've had this guy petitioning to me about the violence that's happening on the streets of Rome. Varinus is somebody I can use to go and clean that up. You are wrong, Centurion. This is not your master. I am your master. By sacred oath under the standards of the 13th. When Mark Antony goes to see Varinus, thought it more likely that he'd just summon Varinus to him, but I guess Varinus won't get out of bed mm. at this point. We are reminded that Varinus swore an oath to be there with Mark Antony back in the first series, back mm. in episode five, I think it was, to be one of the Aguacati. And Mark Antony is playing on that, so he's reminding us of this oath that he made. Yeah. So Varinus gathers all the, what it seems to be like lower crime bosses, mm. I guess, people who are controlling mobs. In controlling the... the Aventine. Yeah. I have a real problem with the way that this is depicted and... It's not that there wasn't crime and that there weren't gangs around. I mean, especially in the 50s, so a little bit earlier, we know that these gangs were marauding around Rome. And you can imagine in a time of transition, this might be happening again. Although the ones we know about are more in a previous era, you know, with people like Milo and Clodius in charge of them. So much higher up. Yeah. The crime gang stuff and the mobster, and this is true with Orestes Fullman as well, although I think he's a good character. It's It just seems so... You know, you've taken The Sopranos or The Godfather and mapped it onto ancient Rome in a way that I don't find particularly persuasive. Well, you say that, which is a very interesting thing to say because the director of this episode, Alan Coulter, he has directed 12 episodes of The Sopranos. So he's somebody who's very much coming from the background of working on these shows that are about mobs and uh, and organised crime and those sort of things. And maybe that kind of influence is bleeding through to Rome at this point. Yeah, I just find it a strange dynamic that I don't find particularly believable. And I'm not saying you need elite players involved. I mean, obviously not everyone in Rome was elite by any means and there's plenty of criminality going on that doesn't involve them. I just feel like it's too direct, as I say, a, a mapping of a kind of modern phenomenon, which in itself is, you know, that whole mafioso picture to a certain extent, seems to have been influenced by fiction itself. Mm. I know that criminal gangs in Australia, in Melbourne specifically, saw themselves through 
the Godfather films. So it's a kind of self-feeding, <laughs> or it has been recently a self-feeding image. Yeah. I didn't find it very helpful or believable or something that mirrored the admittedly the very little we know of this from antiquity. And maybe it is just a, an easy way for audiences to understand criminal gangs. So they're they calling themselves collegiums. What's that term that they're calling? So kind the of word collegium, and in plural, collegia. So hard G. Yeah, it, it always is. And no, no, we're, yeah, we're not true. always very yeah. consistent when we do that with names. <laughs> yeah. It's much more complicated, and I, I don't want to go into the full details. So on one level, it, and which isn't being reflected here at all, it's there are collegia of priests, so they're religious organizations, and they're always kind of religious, which was reflected here a bit yeah. with Concordia. The more kind of well-known version of it is that collegia are kind of workplace-based clubs, which some people call unions. That's a bit of a misnomer. But they seem to have centered around you paid certain dues and then once a year or maybe a few times a year you had a banquet for people who couldn't normally afford banquets. Mm. And specifically you paid into a burial club so that when you die, you get properly buried. Which as we've mentioned already today, very important to the Romans. And there are people at your funeral having enough mourners. So they're these kind of people with common interests who come together. Criminal clubs, not so much any evidence I know of. So that's another way that this rubbed me up a bit. I got a bit annoyed by it. I don't know that there was a collegium of Concordia. I guess there were priests of Concordia, but again, that's not what they're reflecting here. Because Concordia is, she is an important goddess. She doesn't get talked about very much, but there is a temple of Concordia in the forum, which is a very ancient temple. The idea of harmony and bringing together, you wouldn't think it perhaps, but is important to the Romans. So to the point where, you know, she's being venerated by a few of these ruffians, you know, we need to respect her. and, and Yeah, as I say, it seems so divorced from any kind of gathering that you might you might have a collegium but as i say it's more likely to be a collegium of carpenters who Mm. decide well they'd get minerva probably but anyway concordia might be one of them and certainly destroying her image which happens in towards the end of this episode would make people distraught destroying an image of any god yes because you're inviting trouble from that god and i think that's also um done to illustrate the point that varinus is at he doesn't care about anything at this point he doesn't care about any risks he's taking, taking care of himself, uh, the danger that he's putting himself in, the position that he's putting himself in. So what's desecrating a god and the various vulgar language that he uses towards her, which I won't repeat in a nice friendly podcast here. So one thing to keep an eye on, one of the ruffians, if I can call him that, one of the head of the Collegia is named Memio. I didn't pick that up. This is possibly from me Googling, but I don't know if they said his name on the screen. And he is the one who takes the most offense anytime somebody uh, says something blasphemous in the presence of Concord. Keep an eye on him just as the series progresses because he's got a a, a small but interesting kind of evolution of his storyline. <laughs> so is Memio yeah. the one who with the long straggly hair? No. no. The long straggly hair people in, in these gangs, that struck me as a bit... Coming from left field, we haven't really seen that. And I think one of them was called a barbarian at one point, as if they were a foreigner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They pretty much had issue with him being in the presence of the god at all. Yeah. It just struck me a little bit that they were going for, I know this is later, Mm. but a kind of Game of Thrones aesthetic all of a sudden in this episode. That look that we associate probably quite wrongly with sort of medieval peasants and barbarians, and, and it didn't seem to fit the 
tone or the look of the show we've had before. Well, it's a bit odd. This predates Game of Thrones. One. It does. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. And, and two, if you're going to have, for example, a crime show in Los Angeles, you are going to have Latino gangs. You mm-hmm. are going to have different ethnicities and they're all going to hang out with the same sort of thing. And Rome is a melting pot. It is. I can see the very long bow that they are drawing. It's fine. I, I mean, I'm glad that they're not just going for all the same look, but it doesn't seem to have happened before. Mm. It's like it's suddenly there now. And maybe they're just trying to re- reflect in their way a different side of Rome so they want people to look a bit different. As I say, because it's so much associated with and even though Game of Thrones wasn't around at this point, it's still there in films, isn't it? I mean, there was a certain amount of this episode towards what we're coming up to talk about that seemed almost inflected by horror movies and that sort of the idea we have of the so-called dark ages of people being hairy and mm. less clean and a bit I'm not describing it very well but that whole aesthetic was suddenly there yeah, in this yeah. episode it was a bit Monty Python um, I, I think you've forgotten it I've forgotten what the previous episodes yeah mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying Rome looked clean in the previous episode. No, but there were, there were things like uh, when Varinus was working for Erastus Foreman and they went to shake somebody down for money. That was a bunch of Indian was traders. Pol- it was Polo who worked for him? No, right? it was, no, no, this is before that. Varinus. Oh, <laughs> oh, I have forgotten things. Yeah, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a bunch of traders from yeah. India. And I yeah, remember they... that because it kind of trigged on me, you know, where they're, they're far from home. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I appreciate that that's been going on. Yeah. There was something a bit more about the this episode that just rubbed me up the wrong way, clearly. Maybe it was just the tone of the whole episode. Oh, yeah, m- more than one. So now we've got Varinus being established as the, the head of the crime organisations, I guess. Uh, they've all got to pay tribute to him. Quite antagonistic to him at first until he... Smashes invokes, the statue. He smashes the statue and invokes Hades and kind of terrifies them into... That's, that's what I meant by the slight horror movie inflection. It's mm. like he becomes this overwhelming figure who who embodies the god of the dead or something yeah which i guess makes sense a certain amount psychologically given that he feels responsible for all those deaths and also would maybe make him willing to smash a statue of a god which is the embodiment of the god because he's now the god of the underworld he doesn't need to fear anything yeah yeah um do you want to talk about pluto no well it's pluto and not hades pluto is the, the roman, roman version but I guess Greek names are becoming interchangeable. So that's okay. Yeah, give it a um, pass. Right. Well, I think also they didn't use Pluto just because of the Disney associations. That <laughs> might seem a bit ridiculous. Maybe. I don't think they use that character very much anymore. Those of you who will not do business with me are my enemy. And so? They will die much sooner than they expect. Steady on. Remember, blessed Concord. No menaces. We then get introduced or reintroduced to a few, a few characters in this episode. And much like... Uh, Timon's brother Levi coming these are characters who are going to be more important as the season goes on so there's three of them that came to mind but possibly more one is Mascius who served in the 13th Legion with Varinus and Pullo he was introduced late in season one when Varinus managed to get some land for the uh, retired officers of the 13th and he was the main one who wanted that land he's now back in Rome he's Look. failed as being a farmer apparently yep so uh, he's going to go and work for Varinus and Paulo they've got a madam for their brothels yeah all these characters just seem to be we need these characters let's plonk them in yep they're anyway. suddenly introduced her name's Gaia that's the name that they call me that's <laughs> what she said uh, she's going. Of the earth. She's going to have more to do as the season progresses, and the last one is a blinker new kind of misset, 
And that is a young man who is being beaten up in the streets. One of Atia's servants stops him being beaten up. And then he begs him for work. Well, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Yeah, let's. He'll get more work as the season progresses. Okay. Okay, so those are the other threads that are going to be established in this episode. And finally, 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 finally. We need another violent act, so Anthony's on hand to provide it. I kind of liked this one. You did? Yeah. As in, I liked what Octavian did. I thought it was really smart at undermining Antony because now Antony looks like ineffective because he didn't give Caesar's money to the plebs. He's not carrying out Caesar's will. He's not honoring Caesar. So he's failing in that way. And Octavian's gotten the benefit from this even more so because it's his own money that he's doing it with and he's outmaneuvered Antony. The beating that he got, he probably wasn't anticipating. I didn't like that thing entirely, but I see it as very much pushing Antony and Octavian's relationship to where it needs to be. I mean, if if they follow the history, then they're going to have a truce. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to form an agreement, which... I think the beating makes hard to understand, although even in that agreement, of course, they both have their own interests and it does fall apart very quickly and I'm not sure either of them was particularly surprised by that. And there's this idea that they're both just jostling for power and that's an interim device to have the triumvirate, the, the group of three, come together. Mm. People probably have watched the episode before listening to this, but maybe good to make clear that Octavian in this episode, the way he outmaneuvers his, him is by borrowing money on account of what he's supposed to receive from it's the like wealth. It's like three million, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, three was, million sesterces. That's a massive amount of money. It's, a, it's almost a, a senatorial fortune. Yeah. It's huge. Presumably he has distributed the money, otherwise... It's, it well, it matter. sounds like he's borrowed he's against to. it and, yeah, well, it's going to happen. Mm. He's sold... <laughs> everything that they have. <laughs> it's going to leave his mother and sister quite destitute, mm. I imagine, if it if it goes ahead. Well, if Octavian's not there now, which he's not because mm. he goes off to uh, to build an army, then they're dependent upon Antony in this reading of, of how things work out. Yeah. Given that, you know, the Artius connection with Antony is part of this series. So, yeah, it is all about Octavian doing what he can to build power. And you're right, it is clever. Mm. I've decided to enter public life. This seemed the best way to introduce myself to the people. That will be seen as a direct challenge to me. Yes, but that isn't my intention at all. I suggest we make a public display of unity to quash such notions. A public display of unity? It makes sense. Our interests are conjoined. While you are consul, my name will lend weight to yours. And when your consulship is over and you retire from politics, as you have promised, I will step in as leader of the Caesarian party. I see. You will need protection from your enemies in the Senate, and I can provide that. I did think that the beating makes it hard to come back to that truce that they're going to make, so how that works logically well, is difficult. politics, you know? Yeah, I know. If you were thinking of it in strictly Roman terms, I think it would show Antony, and maybe they want this, as somebody who cannot control himself. Because while bodily autonomy for slaves and non-Romans is non-existent, Mm. so if he'd beaten up anyone in that category, no one would care, being able to restrain yourself around Roman citizens, an elite Roman citizen like Octavian, who is now a patrician, 
that I think is something that is regarded as essential to have virtus, to have that kind of manly courage yeah. that, that Roman men should have. So Antony would be seen as out of control there. But that may well be part and parcel with how Antony's portrayed here. Yeah. And it's certainly how the Augustan regime will portray Antony as unable to control himself. Yeah, that is the perception that we've, we're left from, you know, qu- quite a few of the actions that we get from Antony in the in the historical texts. So you know, I, I can see why they've done that. Just prior to this, there was a, a small scene with uh, Sevilla and Cicero. And in that, Cicero says that he doesn't think that Octavian will be a credible threat to Antony. So it's interesting how quickly that got turned around. Do you remember them even talking? It was just a... I've a, completely forgotten that scene. It's just a very... Is that at the dinner party? No, no. It's it's even after that. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Sevilla going to Cicero, you know, um, maybe now Brutus can come back to Rome uh, yeah, for yeah. whatever reason. I do uh, I, I, I don't know what the timing of, of that sort of thing was. And Cicero going, no, it's too soon. Mm. We need to, you know... And then being very much in each other's hands as well. That kind of struck me as a bit weird. And then we get this scene. So it rolls straight into that. So, yeah, so that implies Cicero is underestimating Octavian as well. Yeah. That we only need to deal with Antony. But also to some extent that they're realising that he could be an option. Yeah. He sees his heir. Mm. What I'm not sure has, well, maybe it has been adequately dealt with in the series Because I think it did surprise everyone. It still surprises historians to a degree. The logic of Caesar making such a young man his heir. Now, you could say, well, of course, he didn't think that he was going to be killed at that point. Probably thought he had another 20, 30 years for Octavian to be old enough to be a consul. And that would make sense. Yeah. We had bits and pieces very, very early on. I'm sorry, I'm getting completely off topic (laughs) for this episode, but it sort of made me think of that. Very early on, we had Caesar having an epileptic attack. And Octavian kind of dealing with it and keeping quiet about it. And well, well, not keeping quiet yeah, about it ultimately. For a while. For a while. <laughs> Until so, his sister sleeps with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't remind me of that. But we didn't get that much interaction between them. That was a bit of a missed opportunity in retrospect. We did get a few dinners. And during the course of those, Caesar would ask Octavian, what would you do in this situation? Mm. And Octavian would go, well, you know, I'd make a bunch of men senators who are new men and are completely loyal to me. And then in the next episode, completely didn't happen in the history books, but there you've got Harry Gauls joining the Senate and Varinus joining the Senate and those sort of things. And that was Caesar getting some good advice. Not that he wanted it that way. Wrong word to say. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. But... He's seen something in Octavian. Yeah. I guess there are so many things going on that it's hard to spend very much time on that. Yeah. But it it was a bit blink and you miss it. At this point, Octavian leaves. He takes some soldiers. He goes on his horse. He writes a letter to his mother and off he goes. She's very angry, isn't she? (laughs) I hope in time you will understand the gravity of your mistake, he writes. He's going south to Campania to stay with his friend Agrippa, who's established himself there. And on his way... He rides past a cart, and in that cart... Yeah, this was a bit of a drop from nowhere, wasn't it? Didn't expect it to come up this soon, really. Yeah. <laughs> but there's Varinus's kids. And his sister-in-law. And his sister-in-law. Not dead, sold into slavery. So Erastus Foreman lied. Not entirely surprised. He knew he was going to die at that point and had nothing to lose. Mm. But at some point... That's going to have to be dealt with. Mm. And I guess maybe at that point, Varinus might realize how far he's gone. But it'll give him something to focus on if he knows mm-hmm. that this has happened. I probably would have forgotten it. 
But I did know that was going to happen because when we interviewed Lorcan, mm. he mentioned it. He spoiled <laughs> it for me, but that's fine. Okay. He was talking about the kind of manipulative aspects of his character. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on all accessible podcasting platforms. They're always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm the son of Hades, apparently. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.